P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. The president's phone, the point of much speculation and worry. Uh, Now we have a new worry. President Trump is fond of using his Android phone, which is not as well protected as some newer versions of other phones. I want to bring in Nicholas Weaver, who's a security researcher at the International Computer Science Center in Berkeley, California. Um, Nicholas, you wrote in a recent uh, in a recent column that you said that you would basically assign to your uh, advanced graduate students the project of hacking into the president's phone. How, how easy is it? Um, assuming it is a Galaxy S3 or S4, it is very straightforward. And it's for two reasons. First of all, that phone has known vulnerabilities that you can just basically download. And to use one of those vulnerabilities, all you need to do is convince your victim with that phone to click on a link. And given the president's temperament, it's probably pretty easy to tweet something at him that would attract his attention and cause him to click. Well, why doesn't they, why don't they just use a more secure phone, give him that function if he wants it, that outgoing function, and then pair back any of the, uh, any of the incoming data? The problem is, is what is his workflow? His workflow on that phone is he wants to take phone calls off the book from his friends, and he wants to tweet and read links. And so you could build a more Trump-resistant phone, but you'd still need to get him to cooperate in terms of switching over to basically separate devices for his different roles. Well, so let's talk about sort of the past precedent for this. I mean, what have previous presidents in the uh, high-tech era done? Obama, who was a notorious BlackBerry addict, just broke down and used a government device. And um, he joked about the mourning process of no longer having his own personal device. Well, what's the, what's the drawback for them? Um, in order to do a secure device, it's going to be locked down and more limited. So let's say I want a phone that Trump can tweet on. I'm going to want to remove the microphone and camera. I'm going to want to remove the cellular connectivity and GPS because I know he's going to carry it where he shouldn't. And he's not going to want a device that's that crippled. All right. So if he doesn't want that device, uh, is there, for example, another device that would do some of this? Uh, for example, I know that there's something called the black phone. Uh, what would the, what would that doesn't have a, the kind of functionality, I guess. Uh, but what would be uh, what, what would be the advantages there? Well, the black phone and Boeing's black type things, those are more locked down Android mm. devices. Um, but 
it would be a new device for him. He's very set in his ways on comfort level. And it's just a really hard problem to convince the boss to do things securely when he's used to doing things his own way. So what if- this is a problem CISOs face all over the planet. Well, so, th- so this, is, this is my thinking right now, is that potentially, unless he were to remove the phone from the room during uh, any confidential conversation, this could be a pretty, pretty serious national, national security concern. Is there anything to sort of contradict that, that impression? No. And what's <laughs> worse right. is that he's had this phone for months. And so the real question is, is not what is he doing now? Because looking at his Twitter feed, the staff seem reasonably adept at keeping the phone out of his hands during working hours, since those working hour tweets seem to be dictated to an aide on a different device. But the problem is, is he's had this phone for months. And we have to assume that that phone was compromised months ago. And so what needs to happen is people need to go back and go, huh, what conversations did I have around the president-elect at the time that I would worry if it got to Moscow, Beijing, Tel Aviv, Paris, or any place else? Well, so, Nicholas, zooming out, uh, you know, there's been a lot of concern about the security of information among ver- various government officials. We saw this with uh, with uh, Hillary Clinton and the and the DNC. I mean, what's your impression of how secure the overall governmental system is? Well, those systems in many cases are private. Um, the the U.S. government, if it's classified has really good protections. The U.S. government uses multiple layers of protection for classified data, and so unless it's, say, for all we know, discussed in a Mar-a-Lago dining room, the protections are really good. The problem is with the U.S. government is the unclassified systems, the stuff that's connected to the Internet. And that's just often such an attractive target. The other problem is personal devices. So... Let's look at that famous photo at Mar-a-Lago of an aide illuminating some briefing document with the cell phone camera. This was related to the missile launch from North Korea. Yes. Yes. So we had a whole panicked gathering, and we saw photos of an aide illuminating a who knows what classified or unclassified document with a cell phone. Now, if this was a government phone... I think it's no worse than having the conversation at Mar-a-Lago where, for all we know, the Russians tip the wait staff better than Trump does. But if it was a private phone, that person is still a high-value target, and the private devices are nowhere near as secure. So if it was a personal phone, they might as well have just faxed that document to Moscow in terms of trying to do a damage assessment. Nicholas, i just curious, if, let's say, uh, one of the patrons at Mar-a-Lago or in any public setting, a meeting of any kind, not just with the president, but if there are uh, mobile phones that are present, is it possible or is it uh, – how easy is it to hack into one and use them almost as a listening device for everything that goes on in the room? I keep thinking also of those home devices like the Alexa, the Echo, and so on. 
It really depends on the device and the security model. So like I use an iPhone and I'm very happy because I know I'm not worth risking a $1.5 million exploit to attack. Right. However, if somebody's using a Galaxy Note or a Galaxy 3 or Galaxy 4 and they know they are a worthwhile target, they basically need to throw that phone in the trash. Because for that phone, it costs basically nothing in terms of exploits. It just basically costs having to take a little time to get that victim to click on a link. Thanks very much uh, for taking the time to explain all this to us. Nicholas Weaver, security researcher at the International Computer Science Center, uh, Berkeley University. Let's get a little bit more color on what exactly happened with Kraft Heinz and Unilever. Uh, Ed Hammond is here with us. Uh, he covers takeovers F4, Bloomberg News. And Ed, I just want to start with uh, some questions. I've got a lot of questions. My first question is, so Kraft made this $143 billion offer for Unilever. Uh, but Unilever spurned that offer, and yet we're still seeing the gains persist in the shares. Can you, why, why? <laughs> well, it's a good question. I think for two reasons. I think one, um, this is not how uh, Kraft Heinz intended this information to come out. The the rumor had started to get into the market. There was some speculation this morning. So they were forced by the UK takeover panel to make a statement. I think behind closed doors, they maybe would have tried to to increase the bid for Unilever and get Unilever to, to come to the table and enter negotiations. But then, isn't it dead then? It's not necessarily dead. I think there's opportunity for Kraft Heinz and obviously backed by 3G, this very, very ambitious and um, sort of de deal loving uh, Brazilian private equity firm. I think there's an opportunity for them to come back with a higher offer. It's unlikely that this would have been their best and final offer. And so I think one of the things we're seeing in Unilever's stock right now is the market pricing in a fairly good chance that this is not end game and that 3G, you know, in the form of Kraft Heinz, come back to the table and try and get this thing done. Well, Kraft Heinz's statement specifically said, and I'm quoting here, we look forward to working to reach agreement on the terms of a transaction. So in other words, they're still interested. This is just the opening salvo, and we see where it goes from here. I mean, Unilever talking about the, you know, the, the deal undervaluing the company. I mean, that's sort of classic takeover speak for give us more money and maybe we'll come around. Well, but it's interesting to me that Kraft shares are up too. So in other words, the market thinks that even if Kraft were to offer a higher amount, that, that still it would be worthwhile. It would be accretive. Right. And and look, this is this is a very good point. This speaks exactly to the 3G business model, which is they acquire companies, they go out, they get scale, and they, they essentially make money off of them by cutting costs in an extremely aggressive, almost a sort of barbaric way where they'll go in and they will fire a ton of people. They scale back on every single small item they can to make you know cost savings. So the, the, the market is looking at this and saying, well, look, you're going to put together a, a company that is worth $114 billion with a company that they're going to pay upwards of $140 billion for. And you're going to have this monster, monster sort of consumer products, food business, and they're going to extract some huge cost savings from it just because that is what their model is. You saw them do it with Burger King and Tim Hortons. They obviously did it when they put Kraft and Heinz together. They're doing it at the moment when they're in this merger with uh, uh, Anheuser-Busch, um, InBev, and uh, SAB. Mayonnaise. That's yeah. what I was going to tell you about, mayonnaise, because if this deal does go through, you'll have Hellman's mayonnaise along with uh, Heinz ketchup. 
and Marmite. Yeah, well, that was I'll and leave PG that to tips. You. I know, yeah. right? It's all under. And, and Go again, ahead, Dave Wilson. Brands wants that are in... a big deal for the Brits, not so much for the Americans. Right. Well, yeah, you know, the name that hasn't come up yet is Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway. Well, he's behind 3G. Absolutely, and you got to bear in mind. I was just looking for the numbers. Berkshire ended the third quarter with about eighty-five billion dollars of cash. So what it means is that 3G through their support from Berkshire, has a lot of firepower to go after a company as big as Unilever. And bear in mind, this offer, as it stands, is the fourth largest ever made for any company worldwide. Only uh, AOL, Time Warner, Vodafone, Monisman, and Pfizer's failed bid for Allergan are bigger. So those are the kind of stakes we're talking about. Ed, real quick, how big could this get? What are you hearing? Uh, it could obviously go up a little bit from here, but I, I think one thing to note on this this buy union of 3G, Warren Buffett, is that they do not overpay for stuff. They're quite um, rigid on price, and, and they obviously are not going to want to go in with a huge number and then have to extract too much cost. I think the real issue here is what it would mean for Unilever in terms of employment. Uh, this company has something like 170,000 employees worldwide, and you can bet that if this merger were to be consummated, a lot of those people would uh, would see their jobs go. Well, we're going to follow this, and we want to thank you for keeping us up to date. Ed Hammond on uh, Unilever turning down a Kraft Heinz takeover approach. Thank you very much. Thanks to Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. The U.S. leading economic index increased again in January, pointing to a positive economic outlook in the first half of this year. Here to tell us more is Ken Goldstein. Ken, of course, economist with the conference board, uh, here to tell us more. Ken, uh, thanks for being with us. As always, an increase, a jump, and it is described perhaps as being a sharp increase, 0.6% higher. Tell us about the details. Sharp increase for a second straight month. The coincident index, that's the one that tells us where we are right now. That continues to sort of move along, creep along, um, you know, not not very strongly. But this is the second straight month that we've got a real strong push in terms of the lead index, which is a signal about where we might be going. So we already start with a strong consumer market, strong housing. Maybe this is suggesting either trade and or investment might begin to start to kick in this spring. Maybe. You know, uh, earlier this morning, Jeff Rosenberg, uh, fixed income strategist at BlackRock, was on Bloomberg Television, and he was talking about how uh, the bond markets right now are wrong, in his opinion, and that they are not adequately pricing in the upsurge that we are seeing in inflation prospects. Do you agree? Oh, the bond market has been underpricing for a couple of years, so this is not anything new. But, But what indicator in here, in this report might point to 
Jeff's point, which is that 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 it's going to be caught off guards. In other words, it's been wrong, uh, and yet it's been wrong for a long time. So people could say, well, it's actually been right. Uh, the the flip side is, at what point does this hit the hit the wall? See, this is exactly the question because it isn't just this sector. It isn't just manufacturing or just consumer or just labor. It really is the different, you know, uh, pulse beats in the different pieces of the overall economy, either by industry or by region, are all suggesting that the pace of activity will at least steady or pick up as we move into the spring, move into the summer. The bond market is not fully picking that up, hasn't been for a couple of years. And so the bond market, in fact, might be caught, you know, dragging its heels at the same time that the stock market might be peaking. Well, the bond market, you do have to add that it has been artificially, uh, I don't even know, not, you know, uh, helped Inflated. by, right, inf- influenced, I want to say, because of the, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve and a variety of other things. So it's sometimes it's difficult to even call that a, a, a you know, natural market. I, I want to go into a little bit of detail on the report because I was looking at two items. One was average average weekly initial claims, plus uh, I was also looking at bur- uh, building permits. Tell us about those two areas. Well, claims, you know, have have moved down lower than we've seen. I think these are lower numbers than we've seen in two decades. The housing starts and housing permits, they move up and down one month, you know, or, or, you know, they fluctuate a lot, but they're moving up steadily. And even with that uh, building supply is below demand so that there's more room for housing to continue. So that, as I say, both the consumer market and housing, they're already doing better than good. They're above average in terms of growth. Maybe that's gonna finally lead some support to the rest of the economy, specifically trade, or capex. So, at what point will we be able to see the pickup in inflation enough to cause a disruption in markets? It's not a pickup in inflation. In fact, we might a not see growth. that. It's a pickup in growth. So that you want to look at manufacturing, you want to look at at signals about business investment, you want to look at trade. Wait, but so if you said it's not about inflation, so we could get sort of the steady inflation. Uh, rate that we've seen for a longer period of time, even as growth picks up? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're close now to about a 2.5% rate of growth in terms of inflation, in terms of wage growth. Maybe that might move up to three. It might not even move up that much. It certainly isn't going to move up more than that. So that inflation isn't and hasn't been the problem. The problem really has been, how do we goose up growth Specifically, how do we get more out of manufacturing? How do we get more out of business investment? How do we get more out of trade? And there's at least a chance that there's enough growth going on, there's enough demand going on to finally force business to move in those kinds of directions, maybe. Uh, Ken, uh, as an economist, I'm going to pull you out of your your comfort zone just a little bit. I want to get your thoughts on interest rates. You think the Fed is going to raise two, three, four times this year? Yes, Thank two, you. three, or four. Right, I knew that was the, that was the economist joke. What do you think? Yeah, not only two or three, or maybe even four this year, but another two or three next year. We know that they want to get to about a three percent rate for the short end of the yield curve, about four and a half, five at the long end, and they're finally going to start to move that. The biggest anchor is not what does or does not happen in the states. The biggest anchor is how low, even how negative interest rates are elsewhere. So there's a little bit of balance here between what we're doing and what's going on elsewhere in the globe. Do you think that the uh, U.S. economy is strong enough to withstand three, four rate hikes this year? Oh, easily, easily. And, And what tells us that is there is this momentum that is building in terms of either this is a two-month plateau in terms of the LEI, in terms of the leading index, 
or there's momentum that has been it has been building for some time. It's starting to finally show up. And what? the surprise is that it took this long to show up, not that it's showing up. Thank you so much for joining us. Ken Goldstein, really interesting uh, discussion. Economist with the conference board talking about the leading indicators. Miller, who is our Bloomberg Television uh, and Bloomberg News correspondent, is at the Munich Security Conference. Matt was wearing a hat that uh, in the rain earlier today, reporting on what he was uh, hearing. Matt, thank you so much for joining us now. Uh, so what, what's been the biggest headline that you've uh, experienced at the Munich Security Conference? Well, um, so far, it's interesting to ask all the world leaders who walk past whether or not they think the White House has lost credibility and what their expectations are as far as um, the U.S. supporting NATO, especially in regards to any kind of Russian conflict. Most of the people that I've asked have said, look, we're, we're here to find out the answers to those questions, so we can't give you our answer just yet. It's really a wait-and-see kind of thing. Um, so it's been very interesting to see that uh, everyone, from the most important leaders I speak to to, um, to the, the soldiers walking around this conference, really just want to hear what the U.S. position is on Russia, especially as it relates to Ukraine. Well, uh, you've got uh, the the Secretary of State. Is he at this meeting, Rex Tillerson? Because I know Mattis, uh, James Mattis and uh, John Kelly, they are uh, uh, attending, as well as Vice President uh, Mike Pence. But I thought that maybe it was Rex Tillerson. Is he uh, he's there as well? I I have seen uh, General Mattis walking around, although I was corrected and told he is now to be addressed as Secretary Mattis. Um, I'm not sure which one is, is better. But, um, no, Rex Tillerson is not here. Right. Um, but we do obviously expect Mike Pence tonight. So, and, and Rex Tillerson, Tim, I'm sure you're referring to the comments that he made in Bonn yesterday, has said he expects Russia to up- uphold its commitments to the Minsk agreement. Um, it'll just be interesting to see if Pence is um, supportive of that as well when he gets here tonight. And I'm actually just about to speak to the president of Lithuania. So that'll be an interesting interview because Donald Trump wrote a letter to her last week saying that uh, he does support, um, well, he supports, let's put it this way, it's going to sound strange, he supports her support of the Ukraine as an independent and sovereign nation. Well, um, and just sort of to your point of that people are waiting to hear from the U.S. and get their uh, get its position on uh, national security issues, w- is there anything else that's sort of come out that's a little bit more definitive than just waiting for uh, Vice President Pence to speak or uh, get more color around our policies here? So, so I, I was asking a lot of people this morning whether or not they think the White House has lost credibility because of this Mike Flynn uh, resignation. And I spoke with uh, John McCain, Senator John McCain, um, as well as um, a couple of the other senators who were walking in and asked them, hey, do you think that Mike Pence has lost credibility because um, he you know, gave misinformation as far as the contact with, uh, with our Russian allies? And Senator McCain said, he didn't, you know, give misinformation. He was given misinformation. He didn't mislead. He was misled. Uh, so appearing to support at least Vice President Pence on his way into this conference. 
Hey, Matt, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the Russians and the feeling about Russia's uh, power. I mean, we just got a report that Russian fighter jets had buzzed a U.S. warship in the Black Sea. You got the report that Finland is going to boost its army by over 20 percent because of heightened tensions with Russia. You're scheduled to speak with the president of Lithuania. Give us the details if you can. I mean, well, as far as the buzzes of the war, you know uh, well as a Navy man that um, military men often do these kinds of shows of bravado, and it's, that's not the kind of thing that's ever probably going to uh, completely stop. But as far as interest in Russia's position, I'd say that the two most um, highly regarded guests here, other than Mike Pence, who hasn't yet arrived, are um, President Poroshenko from the Ukraine, and Sergey Lavrov, everyone, as far as the media pool at least, has been following those two around, um, you know, uh, putting putting down their every move and just watching to see if we get any hint of whether or not there's capitulation on the side of Russians or a little bit more confidence on the side of Ukraine. Uh, can we just get your thoughts on another completely different topic, GM selling its European operations to PSA, to Peugeot? Yeah, this is fascinating. I was in Russelsheim yesterday right outside of Frankfurt, which is where um, Opel has its main factory. Uh, the Germans initially were very unhappy about the way they found out about this deal. I'm talking about Angela Merkel and her cabinet, not thrilled with the fact that they had to find out about the fact that GM wanted to sell Opel to Peugeot uh, from a Bloomberg scoop on, on I believe, uh, late Tuesday. So that, uh, that aside... Um, it seems that they've kind of come around to the possibility that the labor unions have been slightly charmed. Mary Barr visit. She flew here right after this uh, crossed our wire. Right. And so it may be a little bit closer to a deal now. We're here Thursday. Might be Wait, we're, we're losing you. All right. Let's, uh, we're we're going to end it there. Matt Miller, thank you very much. Reporting from Munich, uh, giving us an update on that G20 meeting and also a little bit of color on uh, General Motors and PSA Group. You know, the valuation, uh, I believe, what is it about? $2 billion $2 billion right now. Yeah. That's right now. the valuation of Opal uh, in this deal that, that GM uh, is talking about with PSA. Well, like half in cash and half uh, and debt about assumption. Half in liabilities, right? No. So probably will be some debt issuance if this goes through. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.